The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Maple Knoll Radio Network in Cincinnati, Ohio. Real Life Real Estate, as always, is your public radio source for information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. The Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meets tomorrow evening. The early meetings, because there is one for brand new investors and one for more experienced investors, uh, include a creative finance primer for the new investor. All that information you've heard about. It's possible to buy houses without banks. We're going to talk about some of the basics of how that works. For the more advanced investor, Bob Dressman will be talking about the advantages of self-directed Roth 401ks versus self-directed IRAs. The main meeting at 730 is an exciting one. We've got Mike Jacka coming in from Minneapolis to talk about estimating repair costs right. Well, you want to talk about a basic skill if you were going to be in the real estate investing business... That is, that's one of the one of the top five or six because you just cannot make a good offer without being able to make good uh, repair estimates. Uh, Mike will be providing a re repair estimate sheet for every single person who attends, and it is guest night. So, if you are anywhere near the Greater Cincinnati area, you might want to find a way to get to that meeting tomorrow night. You can get more information about the location, etc., at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. Mike Jacka is also my guest today on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to talk uh, not about his topic tomorrow night, but about something that every real estate investor has to do at some point in their lives and probably during a lot of points in their lives if they are going to make any money. And that is presenting offers to sellers. I've been in this business a lot of years. I'm not even going to say how many because then you'll be able to calculate my age. A lot of years. And I've bought a lot of properties. And one thing that every single one of them has in common is that I made an offer on it first. So it is something that you absolutely must know and that a lot of people are very nervous about, especially uh, toward, toward the beginning of their careers. But we're going to talk today about a strategy for presenting offers that might actually make it a lot more comfortable for you. Uh, joining us from somewhere in the Midwest, as he is on his way to Cincinnati right now, is Mike Jacka. Mike, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. 
Are you there, Mike? Oh, please tell me we didn't lose Mike. I feel like I've, yeah, I feel like I've got an open line, but he can't talk to me. And this is always fun on live radio when we have a technical glitch like this and Vina has not planned anything to say and her guest isn't here. Mike, are you there? I am. Oh, there you are. <laughs> that was a scary couple of minutes, but not nearly as scary as uh, when you're sitting in front of a seller for the first time, <laughs> trying to explain to them what it is you want to do in regards to buying their properties. Um, now, just to give listeners some background, your business, yeah. like what, 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 what is it that you are aiming to do with properties that you buy? I, uh, that's a good question. I do a lot of different things. For me, my exit strategy or my end game plan is going to depend on a lot on what the seller's motivation is and what kind of a deal I can structure with the seller. So if it's going to be an all-cash deal and the property needs a lot of work, uh, I may rehab it these days because I'm so busy with other stuff. I'm wholesaling those properties off. And if their motivation is they just need to get rid of a property and we can create some type of a creative financing where we don't have to go to get bank financing or hard money or, you know, something to bring in a small amount of private money or we can get the seller to finance the whole thing, then I'll hold on to them myself and some of them I put right in my IRA, my Roth IRA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... It all depends on what the sellers, what they need before I'll decide what I'm going to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't really care which one it is, as long as I can get a deal structured with them that makes sense one way or the other. I got multiple different, you know, exit strategies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've been in this business a while. Yeah, I've been, I started in 1992 as a realtor. And w- within the first probably two years, I picked up a client who was a a landlord who was looking to buy more properties, and I started finding properties for him, and then it just kind of grew into a partnership, and he took me under his wing, and after, you know, we became partners, and after a few years, we had, like, 30 rental properties that were, about half of them were free and clear, and that was in the early 90s, and then I kind of evolved, and he wanted to stay in the little rental properties in one area, and I wanted to move on to other stuff. So we split the partnership, and that was back in 1998, and I've been on my own ever since. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, for the purposes of a discussion that's going to last an hour and not three days, (laughs) let's um, let's talk about the the sellers where what you need them to do is take a low cash price. So it's going to be a, a, a rehab deal or a wholesale deal, something like that, where it's it's pretty straightforward. It's, you know, here's what I can pay. Can you take it or not? What what are you looking typically to pay for those properties in, in terms of like a percentage of value, some kind of formula? Yeah, we use, I use what's commonly referred to in the industry as the mail formula, the maximum allowable offer. And that is based on the cost of purchasing a property, the cost of holding a property, the cost of reselling a property, those are fixed hard costs that are going to be involved in almost any transaction or any deal where you go from the buying side to the selling side of it. And that's going to be roughly in the neighborhood of 9%, 10% of the transaction. So those are 
formula, you have, you have to add into a formula. And then if you're going to be using hard money or there's going to be cost of funds, you have to add that in. But typically the number is about 70% of the after-repaired value, not the as-is, not what it's worth today, but what it's worth after you've done a complete rehab on it. Mm-hmm. And then we subtra- just take that and we subtract out the cost of the rehab. So, mm-hmm. example, this easy number is $100,000 after-repaired value. We're going to work with a formula of $70,000 and then whatever repairs are. So if we have $20,000 in repairs, the maximum we can pay for that property is $50,000 on a cash basis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was the kind of number I wanted you to say because that's the kind of offer we make very commonly in the real estate investing business. And a lot of folks, when they, you know, the first time they do that formula and they say, oh my gosh, this, this property is worth 100000 fixed up and I can only offer fifty. They, they get freaked out and they don't want to say that to a seller. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today is sort of a, a, a less stressful way to say that to a seller. Now, before we get into that, we do need to take a quick break. I want to remind listeners that you can ask questions of Mike as long as we are still on the air. So no, don't send me an email two hours from now. But you can do that either by calling 877-772-9658 or by going to our website at realliferealestate.com and uh, just clicking the button that says Ask VNet Question, fill your question in there, hit the send button, and it'll come over to us right away. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you happen to be listening to this show as part of our podcast, maybe on iTunes or maybe on realliferealestate.com, remember that this is a live radio program. And if you listen in on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern at WMKV 89.3 or WLHS 89.7, or live streaming from anywhere in the entire world at WMKVFM.org, that's where you get the opportunity to interact, to ask questions as the guest is on the air, because we get some great folks from all over the United States who are uh, subject matter experts in what they do, sometimes because they've studied it and sometimes because they've just done it a lot, like Mike has. You can call us if you're listening live right now at 877-772-9658 or go to realliferealestate.com to fill out the Ask Vina a Question form and it'll come over here as an email. If you're a chicken that way and you don't want to get on the phone on the radio, that's fine. You can do it that way. Just remember to tell us where you are writing from. We're talking today about the process of making an offer to a seller and really talking about uh, kind of Mike's unique process for doing that because uh, it's very interesting. And, and Mike, before we go on to the kind of how this works and what leads up to it and so on, I think we should say that you live in one of the higher priced and more competitive markets in the United States. Your, your, your market is Minneapolis. And yes. most people think, think about Minneapolis and all they think about is six feet of snow. And they don't realize that it's actually an area where a lot of people want to live and house prices are fairly high. So this isn't, you're making these offers, you're getting them accepted. You, it's not that you have no competition. You run one of the bigger RIA groups in the entire United States. So you're like training your own competition on top of everything else. Uh, that is true about the size of our market. We do have a pretty large market. I am not training my competition, though. You know, I am training my partners. Very good, <laughs> very good. Yeah. And I know that that's and that's a question. You know, a lot of people who are involved in real estate associations get, which is, you know, 
why do you come here and like teach people how to do what you're doing or bring other people in to teach people how you do how to do what you're doing and that's uh, what you just said is is the right mindset because you you get business out of your rear group right yes and i get business out of it they get business out of it. I, and i also learn from it too or and sometimes relearn an example just the other night every now and then you does get tiring and you have to go to these you commit to it and you go to it all the time well, just the other night we had one of our training classes, and the previous month this lady brought in a deal. We talked through it. It was actually a couple weeks ago. Talked through it with a couple different ideas. She went back to the seller. They went back and forth on a couple of things. Came back to the training class two we had two nights ago, and uh, really cool, interesting deal that I can share with you if you want to hear about it. But brought up another idea that put this whole deal together on another term that I haven't heard used in a practical matter in probably 15 years. And uh, we got a seller to accept the deal with subordination of collateral. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just by throwing out that term, one of the other uh, students offered to partner with the lady on this deal if she needed to partner on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You learn stuff, you share stuff. Um, everybody who listens to this show knows I'm a big fan of real estate associations. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, a higher price market, competitive market. Is, I, I'm saying this because going forward in this conversation, I don't want people to sit here and think, well, he must just really have it easy. Uh, no, we got it pretty tough. Our median price in the Twin Cities area is right now is right around 210 I think. Uh, and... A good portion of the transactions we're working with are in the 250, 300, 350 range. And last year we did a, uh, a teardown. I partnered with with somebody else on a teardown and rebuild, and we resold the property for nine hundred thousand mm-hmm, dollars. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't even close to the high end. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, so we do have a tough market. Yeah. So, 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 folks, listen to what he has to say. If it works in his market, it's going to work in yours. So, what we're talking about is the offer presentation. So, let's let's walk through what has happened up until this time with this seller. Um, how did you f- probably find the seller? Did you send direct mail? Did you have a, it was a, a listed property? What what happened that got you and the seller in touch? Uh, there's all kinds of different things, but what's working for me these days that I'm using is um, just basically direct mail marketing and doing online advertising mm-hmm. through um, primarily through Craigslist and, and Facebook, uh, doing advertising there, getting leads through that. Uh, probably the biggest majority of our stuff, though, is coming from direct mail marketing right now okay. at the moment. So in other words, this seller did call you. He, he received some sort of message saying, hey, if you want to sell your house, I want to buy it. And he called you. And what Correct. happened next? Then we go through the, the awkward portion of gathering the information, trying to determine what the seller's motivation is. Mm-hmm. And for me, the biggest thing is, is determining their motivation and find out are they truly motivated. Because if they're motivated to, and they need to sell or you know, I shouldn't even say need to sell. Some a lot of times people can be very motivated but don't actually need to sell. But we need to know what their motivation is. If their motivation is retail price and all cash, then I usually refer them off to a realtor. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, then I keep digging and probing to try and find out is there something 
that we could make work for the seller. So mm-hmm. that it works for us, you know, so I can buy it and either pay cash and wholesale the property off, uh, or if I wanted to do some rehabbing, pick it up and do the rehab myself. Or is it something that I can create my favorite type of transaction is something with seller financing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ways to structure seller financing. And with a motivated seller, we can do that. Mm-hmm. We just need to find out what is their motivation and then what kind of an offer is going to work for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So of all the people who call you, what percentage of them do you decide on the phone are motivated enough that you're actually going to take the next step? Um. About half of the calls I get uh, are motivated enough to where I can go and at least take a look at the property and really run the numbers and see if we can't put something together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's important, I think, especially for our listeners who might be newer to the business, to understand that not everyone who calls you deserves a visit to their property. Correct. And, and it's, it's, probably is, it's probably fewer than 50%. Because I weed out quite a few of them right off the back. They do have an answering service that probably weeds out 50% of them before I even get to see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they start asking questions on the phone, and if they don't, you know, if they won't answer the question, then they don't even get to the point where I'm going to see them. It's the ones that I see that about 50% of them I actually go and look at the property. So roughly 25% maybe of the total callers. Yeah. So f- five out yeah, of 20. Yeah, that's a good number. Okay. Yeah, that's probably a good number. Yeah, I've just I've just had been having a lot of conversations recently with new investors who, man, they want to torture every deal to death. I mean, the seller can call and say, "Look, I'm not selling you my property unless you give me more than full price and pay me all cash." And they're still trying to figure out how to make that deal work. <laughs> uh, the only way to make that deals like that work sometimes is realtors. <laughs> yeah. And partner up, have a, par- a realtor on your team. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I do, and I do refer quite a few off to the realtors. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've talked to them on the phone. At at that point, so so between the time that you hang up the phone and the time you get in your car, ha, has some price been talked about at that point? Uh, well, I've yes, but not making an offer. The price that we're talking about is what are they looking for for a price? So I need to know, do they, are they looking for retail price? And so and if they won't even give me a price, if they just come and make me an offer, then I know that those are non-motivated sellers. Mm-hmm. So those are ones that I, I don't even bother going to look at. Mm-hmm. If I cannot get them to either give me a price or give me a legitimate reason as to why they don't have a price. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're living in a different state and this is a rental property and they really don't know what the value of the property is, this, you know what, I just need out of this thing, just go make me a, a reasonable offer. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then I might go and look at the property and make them an offer in that case, uh, especially with the free and clear property. But if they'll give me, you know, if they'll say something like, well, I just lost my job and I can't make the payment, or we're three months behind and we just got the notice from the bank, or, you know, my husband lost, you know, got injured at work, or all kinds of different things. And one of the key things that I ask, one of the first things after I get their name and phone number and, and all that stuff, is I say, I ask one important question, and this is an important one for people to write down. I say, tell me about your situation. And then I listen to their response. And from a psychological standpoint, 
I've learned over the years that when I ask that question, tell me about your situation, if they start telling me about how many bedrooms and bathrooms and all the things they've done to the property, I know their motivation is more than likely going to be retail price, all cash, no questions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a motivated seller. Motivated sellers are going to say, oh, my situation is I lost my job. Oh, my situation is I can't make next month mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about this because people ask me all the time. I've realized that I bet you half of the properties I buy, I half time I don't even know how many bedrooms and bathrooms are in those properties by the time I make the offer on it because the seller and I have never talked about it. <laughs> we talk about what their financial and their living situation is, and then we work to structure something for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so there's there's been some price named. You know what the motivation is. You know that the price is at least somewhat interesting, or if it's not interesting for cash, maybe it could be interesting for seller financing. Before you've made the presentation, I assume you've gone out and looked at the property. Yes, I've almost always looked at the property before I actually make an offer. Mm-hmm. And how how detailed a look are you taking at this point? I'm looking for what is the overall condition of the property. Does it need a full-blown rehab where we have to you know, replace the kitchen, bathroom, or does it just need cosmetic work? Is it a livable condition as it is, or is it not inhabitable as it is? And those are things that will make differences in my overall offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you are making this offer presentation, which is what we're getting around to here is how that happens, are you typically sitting in the seller's living room? Or are you sitting in a McDonald's? Is this by phone? How, how, like physically, how is this happening? For me these days, it's almost always via email. And then then the conversation. So I, I, I put together a letter of intent, and I submit that via email. or And a lot of times I'll put it in the mail if they don't have email. But almost everyone has email these days. Mm-hmm. So I usually submit my offer via email. And then I follow up with them a day or two later. So I let them know that I came up with a couple different options, you know, and I, and I softened the blow a little bit saying, you know, I, I couldn't quite come up with exactly what you wanted, all cash, but I did put, you know, I did work the calculator pretty hard and I came up with a couple different options for you to take a look at. Why don't I just go ahead and email it to you? Uh, it'd be easier for you to take a look at it and then give me a call back and we'll talk about the different options. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, Okay. That softens it for them, too. Okay, so so we've now led up to the point where you're going to now have this conversation, and we're going to deal with that after the break. I want to let listeners know that if you have any questions about what Mike's talking about, whether it's about his business, what he does, the offers he makes, how he does this, you need to give us a call at 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email by going to realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can always stay in touch with Real Life Real Estate on Facebook at facebook.com slash realliferealestate or by joining our email list at realliferealestate.com. Most weeks we have a special gift of some sort for listeners at that website. And if you give us your name and email address, we will send you an email every week telling you what is happening on Real Life Real Estate, reminding you to listen live and with an article by or about 
our guest or topic to uh, further educate you beyond even what you get by listening to the show. That's realliferealestate.com. While you're there, check out the $1 Inner Circle offer. You can get a month of uh, additional educational webinars and uh, email coaching from me directly by pledging $1 to WMKV Public Radio. If you love it, uh, you can stay in the program for $39.97 a month, and you can just do that until you don't want to anymore and just say stop, and the station will stop charging you. But in the meantime, you are supporting public radio here on the Maple Knoll Radio Network. That's the inner circle offer at realliferealestate.com. My guest today is Mike Jacka, who is going to be at Cincinnati RIA tomorrow night and at the Central Ohio Real Estate Entrepreneurs in May, uh, talking about uh, very specifically how to get good repair estimates for these properties, which of course is very important. He's also going to be here in Cincinnati next Saturday doing an all-day workshop on offer presentation and different uh, different tip, tips and tricks to make sure that you're making the right offer and that that offer gets accepted. We're also taking your questions at 877-772-9658 or by going to realliferealestate.com and clicking the tab that says Ask Vina a Question. That sends me a question for Mike via email. So let's talk about this process of yours in making the offer, Mike, because you you already said that you might come up with a couple of different options for the seller. You talk to them. You say, you know, I got some stuff for you. I am going to email it over to you. And now we're going to talk. Uh, you know, if you have any questions, you know, let, let's, let's talk after this. Walk us through what that really looks like. Okay. Um, probably the best best way to describe what it is I do to get my offers accepted or to increase my probability of the offers getting accepted is, for, for example, and you said this earlier when we first got on the call, that beginning investors are afraid to make that low all-cash offer. Well, there's another class of people that are afraid to make that offer, too, you know. I fall within that class, too. <laughs> so when those offers are really low, uh, even sometimes I'm embarrassed to make that offer. However, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I've learned how to do what I, the way I'm structuring it, and I learned this from everyone else over the years, and I've just kind of put it into my own system. Uh, best way to describe this and how it works and why it works is let me give you a real-life example that just happened within, uh, last fall when we, did the, we finally closed the deal. lady had called me off of a... I can't remember. I think this one was direct mail marketing. Don't think it was online. But anyways, she called. She had a property. She said, I asked, what are you asking for the property? $200,000. Okay. Do you know what kind of shape the property is in? She started giving me all this stuff. And I'd asked her, what's your situation? So her situation was her husband just had a sudden heart attack and died. Mm. So, And he was self-employed, so he had no life insurance. He had nothing. And they were basically living off of his income as a self-employed uh, entrepreneur. And they didn't have much for saving. But they had this house that if it was all fixed up, it would be worth in the neighborhood of $300,000. She knew it was worth $300,000 all fixed up. 
she also knew that it needed, in what her opinion, it needed about $40,000 worth of work because that's what her contractor, handyman slash friend, had told her. She knew she couldn't come up with the money because she tried listening with the realtor, and the realtor's like, well, a buyer can't get financing in the condition of the property. So I learned all that, and I also learned one key factor. Her biggest thing was she was stuck on $200,000. And I'm like, well, what if I can only pay you 175 then she said, oh, I probably wouldn't sell. I need the $200,000. I'm like, okay, well, what do you need $200,000 for? She goes on to describe what her situation was, and I finally found out her true motivation. She was, there was some equity in the property, even with needing that amount of work. She had a $112,000 first mortgage, and there's nothing above that. So she figures in her mind, if she sold it for two hundred, paid off that one twelve, she'd have you know, seventy, eighty thousand dollars worth of equity that she could bank and live off of that for the next ten, fifteen years mm-hmm. to supplement her social security and all that stuff. So now that I know what her true motivation was, I was I'm like, okay, well let's come let me come to the property and take a look. I first need to see what the repairs are gonna be if I have my contractors go through there. Turns out my number was closer to sixty thousand dollars. She was at forty. So not too bad for a seller. Usually if it needs 60, the seller's going to say it needs 10. <laughs> so she was pretty close on what it needed. And I spent some time talking to her and, and under, trying to understand what her where she was mentally and emotionally over this whole situation. And it was partly she wanted to get out of the house because of what happened to her husband. They spent their whole life there, married for 35, 40 years. So that needed to be dealt with. And then I'm like, okay, I went through and I did my numbers. Well, I did this all in my head. I'm like, okay, well, I'm around 150, 160. She's at 200. I, I didn't make her an offer. I said, I don't know that I can come up with quite what you're looking for. And I didn't say a number. I just said, I, I, well, I was talking to her. I said, let me go back to the office. Let me run some numbers, double check. I might even call a contractor because there was one item that I needed a, a specific price on that I wasn't, not a normal item that I would have a number in my head. So I called the contractor, confirmed my opinion was right. So my number 60 worked. Went through, do my the, the formula. So my all-cash offer came to 155. And she, I know she won't take less than 200. So then I sat down and I said, okay, now how can we structure a couple of options to give her what she wants, the 200,000? And I came up with an offer in the middle of 175, which was taking over her existing mortgage and then creating a second mortgage, giving her a little bit of a down payment, and then paying it off with no interest over 10 years. And then a third option, which was the full price, which she was asking, 200000 nothing down, same thing, take over the first, the first mortgage, and gave her a little bit higher monthly payment than the other option. Put that all into a letter of intent, emailed it off to her, called her back two days later. She says, well, you've given me a lot to think about. I got to, you know, give me a couple more days. She calls me back three days later. She says, I'm thinking about your $200,000 creative seller finance offer that I made her. She says, but I, I, I want to talk to my call and see what the implications are. I'm like, perfect. Go ahead and do that. Have them call me if you have any questions. Three weeks later, three weeks go by and I hadn't heard from her. She call, finally called me back because she hadn't returned our calls. She says, would, would you be able to come up to 165 cash hmm. and I said no I, I I can't quite do the 165 I said how about 160 
and she accepted the 160. So the lady who said, there's no way I'm going to do anything under 200, accepted 160. Right. <laughs> well, now, why do you think she did that? Because I I didn't make her just a, a lowball cash offer. I also submitted my scope of work with that offer to show why it was cash. And I explained to her that this is how it works, and we got to get bank financing, so this is all I can pay if we're going to do cash. The other way is going to be a little more creative. So, And she was initially thinking about that, which, and I didn't care which one she took. Uh, any one of those three would have been just fine with me. But she was leaning towards the top price because it was uh, what she wanted. But she had this letter of intent with the three different options all written out, and she was able to sit there and think about it for a couple of weeks rather than just getting upset that I made her a $155,000 offer. Mm-hmm. So she thought about it for a while and then came back to me with a counter offer. So I used that process to get the cash offer, and then I ended up also on the property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned there that you gave her your scope of work, and that's that's something uh, I, I knew you did that, but that's something that most people don't do. What What is the purpose of kind of showing your hand in terms of this is what I'm going to spend, you know, itemized more or less, uh, to a seller? Uh, I don't look at it as showing your hand. I look at it as supporting your offer. Because if you come in with an offer, a lowball, we, you know, they might think it's a lowball offer. In our mind, it's justified because we've seen the numbers. Well, why not show it to them? Those are the numbers we're working off of. Mm-hmm. Show it to them and say, I, my intent is. And also, they like seeing that because they, now they know you're going to, that house is going to be mint. It's going to look like they've always envisioned it to look like and a lot of times they're happy about it. You would not believe how many times people ask me afterwards, you know, we're sitting at the closing table when I buy a property for cash and they know I'm going to rehab it. They're like, would you mind if I came by and saw it afterwards when you're all done? Mm-hmm. They, they get, they're joyful that someone is finally going to do what they've been thinking about for the last five or ten years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, do you, you said something sort of at the beginning of that story about how she believed that if she sold it for 200 she was going to have 78000 $70 or $80,000. Which, which is not actually accurate. I mean, no, it's not. <laughs> typically, if you sell a house particularly to a homeowner, which may not have actually been an option in this case, but... There are a lot of costs there that in, you end up netting, you know, quite a bit less. Do you ever show that sort of thing to a seller when they're when they're stuck on a price? Uh, I don't have a conversation with them about that. Uh, now, this lady was already a little bit more sophisticated when it and understood the numbers, and that's one of the reasons why she had called off my marketing anyway. So, because she'd already tried listening with a realtor friend and the realtor friend was honest with her and basically it's done and it's a net sheet and that's the other thing too I do with sellers uh, and actually I'll be sharing that with everyone on Saturday is how I use that seller net sheet now this lady I didn't have to because she was our she was already at a realistic number mm-hmm. but I can do the exact same thing by doing exactly what the realtors do with a seller net sheet so if an offer comes in and the realtor says you know mr. seller if you accepted this offer even though it's full price, when we get done working, backing out all the costs and expenses of selling this is, and paying your mortgage, this is what you're going to net. Mm-hmm. Right? So in many other scenarios, not this particular one, but other scenarios, 
I'll use a seller net sheet, and that, and I work through that with the sellers, and I don't hide anything. I actually, I ask the sellers to put in the numbers for me. Mm-hmm. You use the numbers, and they can't argue with the end result. Mm-hmm. How, how much is the realtor's commission going to be? How many more payments are you going to have to make while you're waiting for it to sell? Uh, what kind of improvements is the home inspector going to insist that you make, or else the bank won't finance the deal? How, how much is the um, buyer going to ask for you to pay for their loan? Uh, all, all of that sort of stuff. And it, it adds up. I mean, you said earlier it costs you 9 or 10% to sell a right. property. To buy, hold, and sell mm-hmm. from the cash standpoint. And I've used that, that seller net sheet strategy to where sellers thought they had equity and were expecting to make, you know, fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 off me, mm-hmm. end up writing me a check to buy their house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because and- when you work through them and you show them the numbers, don't hide it from them. Show it to them and let them be involved in the numbers telling the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's real life. I mean, that's not that's not some slick real estate investor sitting up and sitting down and making up numbers. I talk to people all the time that you know they owe one hundred thirty five thousand on their house and they want to sell it for one forty because they want what they want five thousand dollars, and they don't, they don't get that if they sell it traditionally, not only are they not going to make five thousand dollars, they're going to bring five thousand dollars to the closing to sell the property. So that's 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 an important point that you know we we think differently than civilian sellers do and sometimes it helps to guide them through what's actually going to happen to them if they sell the property traditionally instead of you know for cash to a real estate investor or subject to or something uh we have some uh caller or some uh listener questions saved up here but before we get to them we're going to take a quick break if you have questions you can call 877-772-9658 or you can go to our website at realliferealestate.com click the tab that says ask me a question and just send it on in Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to Mike Jacka, who is a rehabber slash wholesaler slash landlord from Minneapolis and uh, is coming to Cincinnati to speak at the Cincinnati RIA meeting tomorrow night. You can get more information about how to see that presentation on how to do repair costs accurately uh, at CincinnatiRIA.com. Um Got some questions here that have been coming in via email, and uh, okay. some of them some of them are, are somewhat related to offer making. Uh, this one is from Linda here in Cincinnati. She says, "When I'm trying to negotiate a subject to dealer to t- deal with a seller, which is you know one of one of the things you just mentioned, what is the best thing to say when the seller says, so the loan will stay in my name? I find that sellers often walk away at this point. Does that mean they aren't motivated enough? Or is there some best way to say something to get over this awkward moment? Yeah, if, if they say, if they're concerned about that, that means they were not motivated enough to make that kind of an offer up front. And usually it's only going to be an issue if there's not a lot of equity in the property. If there's a lot of equity in the property, the seller's yeah, the easy re- response is, well, if I don't make the payment, banks going to take it. I don't want to lose all this equity. Mm-hmm. And the sellers are generally going to understand that. Uh, if the seller's not quite motivated enough to, for a subject to, and there's not a lot of equity in them, I usually don't even make a subject to offer. I'll make like a lease with the option to buy or a contract for deed or you guys might call them land contracts some type of a seller financing, maybe a wraparound mortgage. 
something like that, where it's not a subject to per se, even though the effective result is the same thing as a subject to. Uh-huh. I don't. I wouldn't make subject to offers with no equity, and if I haven't determined that they're motivated enough. And the way you can tell if they're motivated enough to make a subject to offer is, they say, "Take my pay- take my mortgage, <laughs> take my house." Mm-hmm. Okay, so if they say, "Take my house," then you're doing a subject to. But I don't say subject to to them ever. I say, "How about if I just start making the payments on your mortgage?" Mm-hmm. That way, you're not saying subject to or, or saying that the mortgage is state right. You're trying to. You're Let me just start, Go ahead. You're avoiding the jargon, which is always a good thing to do with people who don't understand what you're saying when you say, I want to buy it subject to. Correct. Um, yep. So so it really, I mean, Linda, the objection there is not so much the loan remains in my name because the loan's going to remain in their name if they don't sell the house too, right? The, que- the, the objection is right. really you have the deed and the loan is remaining in my name. And Mike's saying, okay, so I don't need the deed. We'll do the same deal on a lease option. We'll do the same deal on a land contract. You know, yep. if, if, if if that's truly your concern, we can fix it. Right. And but one thing I will say that I've noticed over the years is every time a seller's ever come to me with that question, I realize I didn't do enough pre-screening to determine their motivation in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a seller that was either wasn't motivated enough for a subject to offer. Or was motivated enough to get out from underneath the mortgage payment, but needed to be done via a lease with the option to buy or a contract for the some mm-hmm. other type of seller financing. Mm-hmm. So the subject to they're just taking over their payment. There's going to be a lot of equity, or they got to be extremely motivated and ready to walk from the property in the first place. Okay. Otherwise, from that standpoint, I wouldn't even do it unless it was one of those two situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kennel, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, from Philadelphia. Would like to know how you built your cash buyers list for deals you wholesale. Uh, that is, if you're a member of the RIA there, that's the easiest place to find buyers. Mm-hmm. That's where the buyers are at, is cash buyers. Just bring it to your RIA. They're going to have the cash buyers. The cash buyers go to the RIA meetings and, and are on the, the email list for the RIA looking for deals like that. So. Mm-hmm. Finding cash buyers for good rehab properties in our industry is the easiest thing there is to do. Mm-hmm. Right now, we wouldn't have been saying that in 2009. <laughs> but... uh, well, no, I was even saying that in 2009. I wasn't saying that in 2007, 2008. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that might be just a market timing thing. But yes, mm-hmm. you're right. Yes, your your market recovered before ours did. I'm, uh, yes. I remember being there in 2010 and... People saying, oh, no, we don't have any problem selling any deal ever. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, 2010, 2011 is when we had our, our best years ever from the standpoint of buying bank REOs for cash and rehabbing them and selling them quickly. Mm-hmm. That was the best time in probably my probably in my lifetime mm-hmm. for that particular scenario, which you guys I don't think were experiencing that at that time. No, it took another year year and a half maybe to get to that point here. Uh, We just have uh, about three minutes left, and we have a question here from Tony, who is in the Pittsburgh area, two two from Pennsylvania in a row, uh, who would like to know why you start with a letter of intent and don't just go straight to an offer when you're writing these things to the sellers. Now, just to, to 
clarify for listeners who might not know the difference. When he says writing an actual offer, he means like putting purchase contracts together that have these different terms. And what Mike is doing is he's saying, you know, it's it's a more informal thing. It's I, I intend to do this, not this is your purchase contract to sign. Right. And it depends on the seller. So you got to realize making the offer to a seller is an emotional event. And contracts are scary. So I don't want to go and, and put, you know, my initial offer in a form of a contract unless we've already discussed it and talked about it and agreed to all the terms verbally. So when I let, when I put them down in writing, uh, it, it it basically says what we're going to put into a contract when we get to that point, but it gives them time to think about the concept of the offer, not the logistics and the details of the offer. So don't, they don't care about that at that point. I don't care about that at that point. Now, if you're making an offer to a bank where there's a non-emotional decision maker, that's a different story. But when the decision maker is emotional, I like it being that letter of intent because it takes away all that scariness of the actual offer right up front. Mm-hmm. It allows them and it gives them. It allows them to focus on the price and terms as opposed to all the legalese. Correct. Very good. Yep. And and their and their concern, as far as they're concerned, it almost is an offer anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Some very good advice here that I really, really, really hope listeners have taken note of and implement in their own businesses sooner rather than later. Uh, Mike, we look forward to seeing you in Cincinnati tomorrow evening. Folks who want to attend that can go to CincinnatiRia.com to get the times and locations. And Mike will also be in the Columbus area at the in the early part of May. And you can get information about that at uh, CentralOhioRia.com. Uh, we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.